Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from The Central Verse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard, and today is episode 25. I'm delighted to, to welcome Christina Skinner onto the podcast. She is an assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics at Wharton. Uh, her research is awesome. Her papers are great. Uh, she's on a lot of panels that uh, I've, I've watched. Um, and she is doing a lot of great research um, at kind of a lot of the intersections of central banking, financial markets. Uh, she gets into econ and, and law, just a lot of a lot of really interesting stuff. So I'm excited to, uh, to to have her on. Welcome, welcome to the show, Christina. Well, thanks for that introduction, Caleb. It's really wonderful to be on the show. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. And before we uh, jump into to what the topic we were going to talk about today, uh, you've had some some really cool experience, not just here in the U.S., uh, but also uh, across the across the sea in England. And I want to just ask briefly, I know you you worked on a pretty cool project or did some interesting work with uh, the Bank of England last year uh, that, I, that I was curious about. I wonder if you could just briefly tell us what what you were doing out there. Sure, absolutely. So before I joined the faculty at, at Wharton, as you mentioned, I was legal counsel at the Bank of England in their financial stability division of the legal directorate and had a you know wonderful experience there. I worked on a bunch of different things, largely related to Brexit at the time. So sort of working with teams to onshore EU financial services law into UK law, making sure basically that the transition would be a smooth one. And at the mm -hmm. time, I also did some work advising the Financial Policy Committee, which is the macro prudential authority in the UK that's actually housed in the central bank, a little bit of a different setup than the US. Then, you know, I kept in great touch with my colleagues at the Bank of England. I even co-authored a paper with one of my former oh. colleagues comparing the two legal systems. And, you know, last summer, there was an opportunity to rejoin the legal directorate as a secundee. And so, you know, naturally I was really excited about doing that, sort of going back to the same team, the Financial Stability Division at the Bank of England. And my work there was, you know, largely related to looking at policy issues related to the Financial Policy Committee. So doing really sort of the financial stability macro pro kind of work that was ongoing at the time. And, you know, sort of thinking through policy issues alongside the legal directorate. Mm -hmm. And I also had, you know, the opportunity to sort of bridge the academic with the, you know, policy world there and did some, you know, internal trainings and conversations. And, and as you know, I work on, you know, climate change, which is not yeah. something that we're going to talk about today, but, yeah. you know, something that the Bank of England is really focused on. So sort of, you know, doing this, um, I think I've joked with a few people saying that I'm engaged in um, central bank shuttle diplomacy. I so sort it. of you know, translating yep. back and forth. And um, so, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was great. Love the Bank of England. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Sounds like you just had an awesome career today. And it's just, I know it's just getting going. Um, so the reason that we are, uh, or like the impetus for today's uh, conversation uh, was some, some news that, that Toomey broke in the, in the Fed world a few weeks ago. Uh, he's been making lots of news in the Fed world, uh, but this one was, I think, particularly uh, interesting uh, in that he he went on to, I think it was Bloomberg, he went on TV and basically said, hey, we really should rethink how the whole Fed is set up. Um, he has a few grievances, explicit grievances about uh, some of the research uh, that uh, the, uh, the, the district reserve banks uh, have been doing. 
Um, and one of his economic aides, you know, was tweeting out about it. And I know you jumped in. I know I jumped in. A bunch of people uh, had some comments. But you actually, I think, were maybe not the only one, but were one of the only ones to actually bring, you know, you had rigorous academic work, actually, on some of these exact issues. Uh, and so we'll talk today both kind of, I want to kind of think of this conversation in, in two ways. Uh, one, just thinking about if a legislature is going to review what the central bank structure should be, you know, what advice would we have, would you have for them or, or how should they, we think about um, talking about how the central bank should look like. And then we'll dive into more specifically about some of uh, uh, this issue about and history of uh, these reserve banks research division. Uh, so let's so let's just start there with broad. You know, let's imagine you know somebody was asking you. They probably are actually, but you don't have to disclose that. <laughs> if if Congress is going to talk about restructuring the Fed, what should, what principles should they be considering? Yeah, great. So really looking forward to this conversation. A lot of lot of thoughts here. So you know, referring back to the to Senator Toomey's um, remarks, you know, I think yeah. he's or, you know, reignited, depending on how you look at it, a really important conversation about central bank accountability. So there are legal scholars, political scientists, economists that talk a lot about central bank independence. And I think it's also really key to talk about the accountability piece. Yeah. And, you know, it's a conversation, frankly, that we really always need to be having, and especially so at moments in time when the central bank's powers are expanding. Yeah. And in the U.S., right, what I think, you know, Senator Toomey is really putting his finger on is that the federalist structure of our central bank poses very distinct challenges to accountability because the regional banks and the board have a different relationship to Congress. And so that I think is what the senator is, is focused on. And then, you know, sort of you, you asked me about, you know, these big picture questions about what the legislature, what the public should look about, it looks to when they're thinking about a central bank's structure. And mm. you know, I think the major central banks around the world, and especially the Fed, as we know, have grown really powerful as they've developed more tools. And some of these tools are implied, but not explicit in the existing statutory texts like quantitative easing, QE, and various financial stability powers in the US. And there's increasing skepticism or concern about this in some quarters, because it begs the question, you know, how powerful should the central bank be? Yeah. And if the increase in power comes along with a sense that these central banks are their own empires, right, that they're not sufficiently controllable by the public or the legislature, then they'll start to seem less and less legitimate. And their ability to effectuate, that means, you know, transmit policy yeah. could decline too. So, you know, big picture, it's really not democratically legitimate to have a central bank deciding for itself to pursue new goals. That's a slippery slope. Today it's X, tomorrow it could be Y and Z. So it's important for the legislature and the public to be clear about whether structure, right, that's the design of the central bank setup, like you're, like you're asking about, allows for sufficient accountability and scrutiny. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's a very general answer, but, you know, I think I would love to break this link down between structure and accountability a bit more and emphasize three things that I've been thinking about where the system's design is concerned in particular. Okay. So first, sort of one structural piece that I've been thinking about is this, you know, emphasis on the distinction between tools and goals, right? So the Fed is an agent of Congress, but it has both tools and goals. And these are, you know, again, distinct questions. Sometimes I think people assume that the tools can be used for whatever purpose they might seem fit for, but that's not the case. The Fed's tools 
can only be used for the goals that Congress has specified. So part of holding the Fed accountable means concretely that Congress has to make sure that the Fed's tools are only being used for the goals that it gave it. And frankly, that might be a little difficult for Congress to do ex post. It mm -hmm. has to have the ability to ask for information, right, which it can do through testimony and hearing, but it needs to have the right people in front of it and know to ask the right questions. So that's tricky. Yeah. Number yeah. two, um, there's also this question, okay, well, if ex post, you know, bringing people in for, for hearings and testimony can be difficult to sort of pin down the right information set. So, you know, ex ante, what can we really do to promote accountability? And here, I think it's important to focus on ex ante commitments to monetary discipline. So mm -hmm. ideally, Congress has has a ruler to measure the legal propriety of any of the Fed's actions. So Congress and the public need to understand why decisions are being made in the way that they are and mm -hmm. on the basis of what authority. So part of this is a transparency issue, but that's necessary and not sufficient for accountability in my view. The Fed needs to articulate a strategy, right? This is what John Taylor told Congress in 2015, because mm -hmm. it's very difficult to hold the Fed accountable and to assess the decisions, you know, what's motivating them if the Fed can move the goalpost during the game. Hmm. So the last piece, and then I'll stop talking here for a little okay. bit, is um, is of uh, the structure piece, I think is is understanding where the lines of accountability are drawn and not only sort of where the, the channels are, but also are they active or dormant? And, and we'll come back to this point later when I talk about my research with Carola Binder, you know, unlike the parliament, for example, the UK parliament, Congress has a bit more of a challenge given this unique structure of the system. And on the one hand, the regional reserve banks don't really have a mandate from Congress per se, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have to be accountable to Congress and the public. The Federal Reserve Act gives the board general oversight authority over the regional banks, and then Congress is supposed to exercise oversight over the board. So it's somewhat incumbent on the board to, in fact, exercise that oversight. And the question of the day, so to speak, is whether, one, it's proper for the reserve banks to be undertaking research and initiatives outside the Fed board's mandate, what are the implications of that? And two, how much public funds are being diverted to funding projects that are outside of the Fed's main mandate? Now, you might not be so worried about this budgetary issue if you could be assured that it wasn't influencing policy or enlarging the role of the Fed improperly. And that's, again, why it's important for Congress to have the right people in front of it and to be able to get answers to those questions. Yeah. So, so awesome, interesting points. Uh, and the thing as you were talking, actually, that I that I thought of were this, you know, whether or not Toomey is successful in getting enough congressional support or getting enough colleagues to actually uh, have this big review, which I think is, is long overdue, uh, just a, a look at the structure. They did a little bit after the global financial crisis, um, but even that, they just tweaked a few tiny things along the margins. And so, so it's been a long time since Congress took a look at it. Um, but, but even beyond that, even if Toomey is not successful, and this isn't something I had actually thought about until you were just speaking, which is... Um, the next, the, the Fed has set themselves up kind of following Canada's example and a few other central banks that are going to do this big review. They call this framework review every, they put themselves on a kind of a five-year cycle. Um, and it involves, you know, many conferences and the Fed just did their first one um, uh, that, that was announced in 2020, had gone on for about a year and a half or so leading up to that. Um, but they're, I presume they're going to start 
again relatively soon, possibly as soon as next year, if, if they're going to announce the new stuff in 2025. And so it, is that a should Congress play a, a part in that? Should they be thinking about, should they be opining? Because when the Fed announced it, they said, you know, we're going to review our, uh, you know, we're going to review our, our, our monetary policy framework, we're going to review our tools, and we're going to review our communication. They didn't actually end up doing, there was like one paper in the whole series about communications. They didn't really touch that. But they were talking a lot about tools and, uh, and their monetary policy framework, just like you were mentioning. But I don't remember Congress being a part really of that, definitely not explicitly and it, and not implicitly really either. Is that something and just bouncing off ideas and, you know, is this, was this something that they should kind of have a role in deciding what the framework tools and communication should be of the central bank? Yeah, that's a really interesting and important question. I think they should have a role, um, probably not in the first instance. I think it makes yeah. sense the Fed to sort of do its own stock take, right? But that's what this is going to be, you know, if the Fed in fact does stick to the five-year plan, I'm not sure if they will in light of how tumultuous these past couple of years have been. But regardless, you know, I think it's an important opportunity for the Fed to move further in the direction of, you know, this disciplining strategy that I was mentioning before, right? And, you know, I think people get a little bit nervous when people start talking about, oh, you know, rules, right? some kind of, I think, discernible framework that's a bit more specific than what they articulated in August of 2020, because that left a lot of questions unanswered, right, that are still sort of unanswered. So my hope is that the Fed uses this opportunity to conduct a review to move further in the rules or strategy-based direction. And I think it makes sense for Congress to have some opportunity to sort of respond to the work product that the Fed puts out, right? Because at the end of the day, the Fed is exercising Congress's power, right? And so if Congress feels like it's not sufficiently concrete or it's um, sufficiently open-ended that it can't really understand what the Fed is doing and why, then that's, mm-hmm. you know, a place where Congress might be able to say, you know, tell us more, right? Yeah. If you need to if you need to change, of course, that's fine, but we need to have some, some benchmark that we can wrap our hands around. Yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff. And it's an interesting uh, political situation right now as well, because it, it definitely doesn't cut across party lines at all, actually. In fact, there are you know, it's actually been many people on the left have been at least the most vocal as as bringing these issues. And now this, you know, the most recent wave is more from from the right. And so it is some issues that a lot of people are now thinking about, which is which is great. So kind of moving then from uh, from the uh, institutional structure to now talk. Let's talk just for a minute about the uh, the people themselves. Uh, so the central bankers. Um, and you know, I, I have not been in as many rooms uh, as you have in in central banking halls of power, uh, but I've been in a few and a few gathering where they get together, uh, and there are some different views, uh, even within central bankers, about what their what the boundaries should be on their own political action or involvement. Um, and I'll give just one example, um, and then and then I'd love to to hear your thoughts on this. Um, you know, I was I was in a room once where where one central banker was felt so strongly that central bankers should have no part in politics whatsoever. He even said that he never voted in elections and he didn't think it was appropriate to vote in elections uh, at all. And then there was another central banker in the room that thought that was completely bogus and was actually actively campaigning as part of a not a partisan political issue but a, but a political issue nonetheless and i remember just sitting back and and thinking wow i didn't realize the spectrum of opinions on this 
was so hard uh, it was so far there the, the spectrum was so big um so so what should kind of the boundaries be who should draw them how should we be thinking about that kind of stuff you're asking all the fascinating questions today <laughs> i'm enjoying this conversation i mean that is such a that's a such an interesting anecdote and i totally agree with you that it is so important to think about both the institutional structure yeah. and the the people part right i mean yeah. the personnel is policy yeah. and there yeah. is so much surrounding accountability and independence that really turns on the personalities of the people in power because it's all built on this notion of self-restraint so yeah. so really important to touch on this um you know, so I am engage you on the voting and the campaigning and everything because I have specific ideas on that. Yeah. But I think big picture, again, sort of starting starting big picture, the political branches, and here I'm referring specifically to the executive branch, okay. you know, shouldn't be able to influence monetary policy through personnel, right? In okay. that items in the Fed governors shouldn't get pressure to use monetary policy to accomplish fiscal or structural goals for the economy. And that has happened in history, right? But that yeah. should be off limits as a matter of custom and tradition. And the more opportunity that there is for those sorts of goals, fiscal or structural, to enter into the central bank's fortress, right? It's balance sheet through decision yeah. makers. Well, then the more, the, the more vulnerable the central bank is to politics and the more vulnerable is its independence. Um, you know, in terms of things like voting and advocacy, um, you know, I think there are, you know, different categories of off limits. I think, yeah. you know, voting, I think is kind of sort of constitutionally protected behavior. So yeah. I wouldn't go as far as that one individual, you know, I think it's wholly private behavior yeah. that is probably in a league of its own, okay. you know, on the other hand, I think like, you know, things like donations, right. In terms mm -hmm. of campaign donations, well, I would see that like trading, right. And I'd favor explicit rules, pretty similar to what the feds along the very similar rationale. We can't introduce conflict or the appearance of conflicts of interest. So, you know, supporting individual candidates, probably not, but making donations to one of the two major parties, if declared under some limit, probably okay. And I yeah. most likely sort of favor that as explicit internal Fed regulations. Okay. And then there's this area of sort of, you know, commenting on public on political matters publicly. Yeah. And I think you know, here too, I would say I'm probably the first to caution that, you know, it's a slippery slope from expressing yeah. opinions on political matters. Like what should the role of the Fed be? What should the relationship with the political branches be? And politicizing the institution. You yeah. know, like I, you know, like I said, I think there is a lot of power in the personalities of the Fed governors and sitting members of the FOMC. And so some modicum of political self-restraint should be expected. You know, if you think about other powerful organs of the state that have the same level of independence and autonomy, and I'm thinking like the military, right? When officers are in uniform, they're not supposed to comment on political matters. And also with the Fed, I think it's a matter of decorum that's tied to the legitimacy of the institution and the office. So I would see this, you know, as a tradition that's to be upheld. I think any kind of sort of formal rule here might get a little bit tricky because it would be hard to specify all of the situations ex ante. So, you mm -hmm. know, after all, there is some space where 
within the confines of expert technocracy, you'd expect Fed governors to have some views on, for example, how monetary policy can or should complement fiscal policy where appropriate. Mm -hmm. But I think you can see sort of there's a difference of degree here, and one would hope that the governors would respect this line yeah. as a really, really important custom. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that is that is a great those are all excellent excellent comments. I'm reminded of of Brainerd's experience, Governor Brainerd's <clears throat> experience of finding out that she had made a big donation to Hillary Clinton's campaign, and that's been that's been hashed out a lot. But this last time that I was looking into it, I I saw that her her response or kind of her excuse or or the 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 reason that she said that she had done it is, you know, it was kind of the excuse was basically it's something I would have done if I wasn't a governor. And I just didn't really realize that this was a no-no in the in the kind of the culture. And, and she, I think she explicitly used the word culture. Um, and so, uh, you know, these are, yeah, balancing that how you write things down versus, um, you know, just making sure that the new people coming in are really involved and, and brought up to speed on on not just what the rule books say and what the explicit job description says, but, but that they spend enough time with a current and former officials to really get the feel for for how things are, uh, are where the kind of the boundaries are. And then and then it'll be up to each of them just to decide how much they want to push on on different cultural or, or uh, you know, historical historical boundaries. Right. Absolutely. I mean, culture is a challenge for all major institutions, sure. right. <laughs> right? especially, you know, the banks that the Fed supervises. So it's yeah. you know, incumbent on the Fed to, to really be focused on that, too, I think, especially when it comes to things like campaign donations yep. and trading activities, which suggests some potential bias. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. And those governors, I think, are in a particularly weird spot in that they're not coming into the institution as a as a manager, as a senior, senior executive manager, the Reserve Bank presidents are, uh, you know, the chair is some of you could argue that some of the leadership positions are but at least the way that I viewed it most governors that don't have a title besides governor come in and they're you know they get an office and a handful of staff to report directly to them and they have access and can utilize the rest of the couple hundred economists and stuff but but it's not the same kind of structure so there's a lot of soft soft power and soft influence that that comes in there so uh let's then shift gears slightly and and, and kind of jump into this this specific uh it's was the specific tie to, to toomey's comments which is this great awesome new paper that really is a fun intersection of history econ you know macro and uh and politics um, central banking, just lots of fun stuff here. So the paper was called uh, Laboratories of Central Banking, co-written with, uh, with Carola Binder. And I wonder if you could just start, I wanted you to just explain the title of this paper, which, which, I, really, uh, which I really love. Well, thank you for that. I love the title too. And um, I adore my co-author. She's wonderful to work with. Um, yeah. So the reason we, you know, came up with this title is because, you know, well, the Federal Reserve System was, you know, sort of modeled on American federalism. And I think, yeah. you know, people quibble about that, but the parallels and the rationale are unmistakable in my view. And, you know, um, Louis Brandeis famously remarked in 1932 that the states, you know, within the United States are laboratories of democracy, right? Where each state can sort of experiment with its own version of democracy. And when you look at the regional reserve banks, well, they look in some ways to be like little laboratories of central banking too. They've been experimenting away and mostly through the research function. So we thought the title was a really perfect 
fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, it really is. Um, and uh, it's so, so to jump into that, the 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 story, the story of the origin of the research, it's amazing, or at least it, it would probably shock some to consider the volume of research that the Fed produces now on the range of topics that it has, that at the beginning, that wasn't necessarily a, a, a big part of it. So tell us how that evolved, maybe some of the key turning points in that history. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we, you know, we, we both wanted to understand, you know, what the reserve banks are doing now, but we needed to go back in time first and understand, you know, what is the legal basis of the research function within the system and what is the internal governance st structure around that? And there was, you know, a great opportunity to, to discover that and to, to write about it. So um, I'll tell you the story that we yeah. discovered, which I'll try not to make too long of a story, but of course I think it's fascinating. So I'm gonna try and tell it to you in full. And you know, I think there are really four interesting points in time to highlight when you're thinking about how the research function developed legally and in, as a matter of internal Fed governance. So, you know, first, how did the research function of the reserve banks get going? Well, before 1935, it was the case that one of the directors of the reserve bank board was both the chairman and the agent. Those were official titles in the Federal Reserve Act. And the agent was basically the reserve bank's ambassador to the board. So in the beginning, the board wanted the agent to set up a research department to support the board's own work in becoming an economic technocrat. So it was really focused on statistics. Okay. It looks like the research personnel at the reserve banks were actually considered to be employees of the board. And the board's policy was created to keep a pretty tight leash on reserve bank research budgets. And in fact, the board also gave itself the right to review reserve bank research publications and to generally retain control over the messaging of that research. So the second point in time to highlight is 1935 and the chairmanship of Mariner Eccles. Yeah. So Eccles, you know, ushered in a paradigm shift in so many ways. And and research, the research function was in fact one of them. So a combination of the Banking Act of 1935 and Eccles' own policy revisions removed the research function from the AGs of the agent. Mm -hmm. The agent, the role of the agent became somewhat of a ceremonial role at that point. And he housed research under the newly created role of the president of the reserve banks. So Eccles sort of abandons the notion that reserve bank research is a subset of the board anymore, let a thousand flowers blossom, so to speak. Yeah. But Eccles still maintained a policy whereby the reserve banks had to coordinate their research priorities with the board and whereby the board had to approve any research publications that covered anything other than, as the policy memo actually said, quote, yeah. matters of local interest. So Eccles, yeah, so Eccles said, you know, the board is going to review Reserve Bank research budgets and, you know, Eccles post Banking Act policy also confirmed that the board expected the head of research at the Reserve Banks to report directly to the president of the Reserve Banks and not to anyone else. And this must have been to keep the chain of command pretty clear from the from the board to Reserve Bank research. Yeah. Now, the third illuminating point here is World War II and post-World War onset of the Cold War. So and this is really fascinating, in my opinion. So research at the Reserve Banks comes into real focus for the board and for Congress, especially in regard to its potential for controversy. So there are a couple of internal documents that are really interesting. and I'll, I'll give you a few quotes from some of them. 
So there's a 1943 board memo noting that research might unavoidably get into controversial issues, but it emphasizes that the reserve banks need to guard against embarrassing the system. And this is a direct quote, to avoid placing the system in the position of appearing to be biased advocates. Mm -hmm. So you fast forward to 1948, it's the Cold War now, the board issues internal guidance to the new reserve bank presidents noting the delicate political climate and due to, this is going to sound eerily familiar, quote, this is a direct quote here, yeah. large national yeah. debt, a large federal budget, and increased importance of fiscal and monetary policies in the economic life of the country. Okay. So this internal document goes on to urge, okay, that the reserve banks, you know, they should act as centers of enlightenment, of leadership, et cetera. But it clearly warns them to tread very carefully with messaging. Yeah. So a year later, there's uh, 1949 hearings or referred to as the Patman hearings. Congress launched a review of fiscal and monetary policy that evolved into a major review of the system and focused on the Reserve Bank's research function in a really big way. So Congress demanded to know from each of the presidents of the Reserve Banks whether they've been engaged in any research, again, another quote, for yeah. the purpose of trying to influence the public yeah. opinion on controversial matters. The Fed says, no, 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 research is for informing policy, it's for explaining the Fed generally to the public, our research is objective, right, said the board, and Congress then sort of lets the matter lie, as far as we can tell. So after that point, the internal documents, internal to the Fed, go silent, and so we think that the fourth notable historical episode here is the passage of the CRA in 1977, because that piece of legislation asked the Fed to assess member banks' track record of making LMI loans, but the legislation was also then used as the justification for the Reserve Banks to create a community development arm, which in turn significantly brought in the focus of the research function itself. So that is sort of the yeah. early, that's sort of the non-empirical piece of the yeah. research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, like on story, but I think really cool. No, super. No, this is the audience. This is the audience for that. They're digging mm -hmm. this up. This is awesome. And so, and so that, so that leads to basically to today and from, uh, and basically, so then you take this history and then you get to a point where you're able to now actually begin to quantify some of the, uh, uh, the re the amount of research, you're able to put some numbers on what type of research the reserve banks are doing and kind of track how that's changed. So can you kind of tell us about, about that, uh, that process and, and, and what you guys found, what you two found, uh, on that. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I'll be um, shorter winded on this. On this okay, part. Okay. <laughs> we sort of wanted to know, right, like there are allegations or, you know, comments about, you know, mission creep at the sure. Reserve Bank Research Function. And, you know, what does that actually mean? What are they actually researching? And has that changed over time, right? So mm -hmm. to get a sense of, you know, this, uh, as we say, modern day research function, um, Carola and I, with a team of research assistants, we actually hand collected over 5,000 research papers from awesome. all 12 of the banks. Yeah. And we focused on the research papers that had JEL codes. And we, we, we wanted to go across various chairmanships to sort of control for different political environments. So we started with the Bernanke chairmanship and we covered the Yellen and part of Powell's chairs. So we hand-coded the information to see how the topics of the research papers evolved over time. And over the 15 years that we examined, 
The share of papers that focused on inequality, climate, race, and gender increased. So recently about 20% of the papers included one of those topics versus about 5% before the Great Recession. We found that the Boston and Minneapolis Fed published the highest share of papers on those topics in recent years, followed by Atlanta, Chicago, St. Louis, and San Francisco. So empirically, research has evolved considerably to tackle topics that are outside the Fed's core mandate. Sure. Yeah, and that is and that is interesting to see that that track over time and it's big. It then matches or brings some numbers to the the just the political salience of of the issue of why it's come up. It's not just that that politicians all of a sudden decided to take a look at it, but that there was you you know you guys you show an actual change in in the research that is taking place. And so one question that I had as I was reading this, and this was partly from my experience, um, I was at the Chicago Fed for four years, but I and when I applied, I applied for my internship in the statistics division and the research division. And in my tiny hole in, in Eastern Idaho, far, far away from the central bank, those two words, statistics and research, were almost synonyms. Like I, I didn't know when I was applying what the difference was between those. And so when I got rejected by research but accepted uh, in the statistics department, uh, I, I had no, no, no feelings about that. But I got there and, and they were very different, <laughs> very, very different departments. Statistics really should be called like data collection and processing, um, which was good. I enjoyed it. I had a great four years there. We were on the 12th floor of the Chicago Fed. On the 11th floor was the uh, was the research division, and that felt kind of like an island within the within the within the building. Uh, they were they were very different, and I think part of it is the kind of chain of command, right? That you, you called out had been explicitly included in it, um, but it also felt different. Um, at the time, I was thinking of going into uh, econ PhD world, uh, and so I wanted to spend as was my first time in an institution with. A lot of PhD economists, uh, and so I, I ended up spending a lot of time with them. Uh, they would do these uh, quote-unquote free lunches, which was just their joke of they'd give you lunch in exchange for the pain of watching these economists fight each other over their most recent working papers. Um, uh, but it was really interesting to hear some of them them talk and in and, and grabbing coffee with them and stuff and how they viewed their work. And they would talk often about having you know, and they'd sometimes use explicit percentages, like, you know, like 60% of my job is talking about, you know, is doing work explicitly in FOMC meeting prep, or in beige book writing prep, or in, you know, this specific uh, uh, area of Fed related research that the Chicago Fed specializes in. But then there was always, and sometimes people would say it was 20%, sometimes people would say it's 50% of just like basically freedom to kind of research whatever they wanted. You know, one guy at the Chicago Fed was like the leading expert on the auto industry in, in Michigan. Uh, and there were others that were doing all sorts of stuff. And like all of them talked often, not all of them, but many of them would like adjunct at, at, at universities and stuff in, in the city. So this is a long, long kind of wind up to this question of, uh, of what, how should we think about this idea of intellectual freedom, I'm putting kind of air quotes on that, um, that in academia is like, it's sacrosanct, right? Like you, you wanna get, you wanna be at, an, at a university because they prize that freedom to research what you'd like and publish the results as you, as you find them. 
Uh, and then, you know, it's why tenure is so treasured because it feels like that is an, another level of protection around that intellectual freedom. That's definitely not the same. It's not the same degree at the Fed because you are an economist at the Fed. But it's not zero. That was still a very passionate thing that I felt from them. Is they were very passionate about their little side projects, and so I wanted to, to ask you, you know, how should somebody designing rules about research departments or thinking about how research departments should be? How should we think about that idea of intellectual freedom to study and research and publish what you'd like uh, within the central bank? Yeah, it is really interesting. Um, and your sort of experience within the uh, Reserve Bank confirms sort of what I had heard and understood to be the case, which is that a lot of the regional reserve banks, you know, want to compete with top yeah. universities, right, to get the, you know, the best <laughs> economists on staff. And so like part of the either implicit or explicit, right. you know, offer is to have this bit of autonomy. And so, and sort of, you know, intellectual freedom, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, we, um, we sort of leave it as an open question at the end of the paper to say, yeah. you know, we are giving you this sort of historical and legal story. We're giving you the empirical data. Now, you know, go forth and have a debate about what yeah. you think about this. Yeah. And I guess I would, you know, flag three things to think okay. about if yeah. there were to be any kind of rules or expectations, you know. At, at the ground level, I think to the extent there is a, I'll, I'll use your square quote, scare quotes problem. Yes, please, please. Yeah, it's one of signaling and expectation setting. So okay. reserve bank economists are engaged in a host of research issues that actually sit outside the Fed's mandate to act. This might say something about Fed communications, right? So most Americans and Fed watchers abroad probably don't appreciate that the reserve banks can't set policy for the board, right? Mm -hmm. So it might be yeah. that this level of research creates a lot of confusion about what the Fed can do legally or, you know, what it thinks it should be doing, okay? Um, and that sort of gets into, your, into the politics point, right? And there is oh. this risk of politicization that we should be thinking about once the Fed, you know, any organ of the Fed, because I think a lot of people probably can conflate them who are who aren't sort of experts on the Fed. So once the Fed starts weighing in on things with that involve these contested value judgments, it is likely to create divisions even within the system. And Congress, you know, is justifiably wondering, like it did in the 1950s, are the reserve banks trying to, you know, sway public opinion on certain yeah. matters, right? I mean, academics do, but it's not proper for the Fed to try and do that. You know, and then third, maybe we should worry about reserve bank research actually influencing board policy. So reserve bank presidents do sit on the FOMC and, you know, certainly they engage with board staff on on working level. So it's not clear that the board always has plausible deniability or whatever cover it thinks it has here. Yeah. Um, and so this is an important governance question. It goes back to this question about whether the board is exercising oversight and what it can go back and tell Congress about this. Yeah. Yeah, those are those are excellent points. And that was the that's then the awesome framing, I think, of this of this whole conversation is as these debates happen and you know what data can be brought, what history can be brought to then be able to have the, the, the political conversation and the, uh, you know, whether it's from Congress or how the Fed should readjust their, their own uh, internal, internal rules. And, you know, in these, I guess, one other thought that as, as you were talking, you know, I recently just went back through all of the Reserve Bank presidents to do some cataloging of where they were physically located. I've done a lot of work on geography recently. And, 
one of the things uh, that I saw was just the prevalence, and I haven't run the numbers to check what number this is, but a huge portion of the Reserve Bank presidents come from the research staff. And so, you know, these, these Reserve Bank uh, presidents that then vote often have experience. Some, most of the time it's within their own research department, but sometimes it's from other research departments. So, right? One of the leading positions, like when, uh, who's going to be the next president, it's not a, it's not a, a bad bet to go with uh, the research head at that central bank or research heads at other central banks. And so they're again, kind of coming back to that personnelist policy. What should the boundaries be? But this has been phenomenal uh, conversation. I just wanted to leave it. Uh, if there's anything else uh, in this that uh, that I didn't ask that you'd you'd like to opine on or or give any more more thoughts before we close out. Yeah, no, this has been such a fun conversation. I really appreciate you having me. I mean, I think the the only last thing I'll say is that you know overall. I, I'm, I'm sort of pro system, you know, I'm a yeah. proponent of the system we have with regional reserve banks and the board right. of Washington. I think that's a good system, but I'm also a proponent, a proponent of, you know, uh, uh, an examination of the governance structures. And I think in my ideal world, we have both, right. We sort yeah. of preserve the federalist structure, but we increase, you know, our just basic understanding about what's happening within the system. And then we make sure that Congress has the tools to make sure that the Fed is um, doing what Congress has asked it to do. And in a way that the American public really understands clearly. So I think that was sort of what we tried to communicate in the, in the paper. And we had a really great time working on it. It's a work in progress. So we'll you know, continue to, to think about these governance and structural questions and um, really enjoy talking to you about it. Yeah, I love it. And this is, uh, we, we, we dove into just this one paper. You have at least one other paper uh, with Carola that I will uh, link to in the show notes, as well as uh, uh, make sure to uh, uh, flag all of that great work. So we'll wrap it there. Um, Christina, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. You can find her at uh, C. Farah Skinner, and I am at Caleb Nygaard on Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening.